You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. I worked out three times this week, so I'm, I'm almost there. Can you notice? Um, uh, my name is Chuy Rodriguez. I'm one of the pastors. I'm sorry. I'm the pastor, interim pastor right now. Hopefully, in a, in a couple of months, I'm only one of them. And, um, and it's so good to have you guys here to see you all this morning. Uh, so we're going to jump back into our series of the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, please open it with me. We're going to be spending some, ta- some time in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. But before we jump um, back, I just want to do a quick prayer, if that's okay with you. And um, before I pray, I also want to thank everyone. If you remember back in April of last year, I was uh, hired, and uh, a few months or weeks after that, uh, Will left, and there was a lot of uncertainty. And there is a certain amount of uncertainty still around what's going to happen with New City, but there was a lot of fear about whether we were going to make it even to the end of the year. And it's January, and we're still standing, and I think we're, we're going strong. Um, and I want to thank everyone. I want to thank all of you, each one of you who have uh, been faithful and stayed and continue to give and continue to serve and continue to show up. Uh, this is not because of me in any way or shape or form or anyone, really. It's God's will. And I, I believe that we have been witnesses of God's goodness and grace in the past year, and we will be even more this next year. So I want to encourage us all, encourage us to uh, just be excited about what God is going to do with New City Fellowship in this coming year. And again, make sure I I. I, I you hear me say thank you for being here. Um, let's pray and give thanks to God for that. Dear God, thank you because you are truly the one who builds up your church. You are edifying it. You are working in it. And you are the one who continues to move us forward. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you because uh, we're still here and we are still preaching the gospel and having fellowship, and and I know that through this church and the people in this church, uh, many more will come to know you, Uh, people will be saved, people will be um, brought near to you, and I pray that as much as we witness your grace and your goodness and your provision last year, I pray, God, that you would even uh, lavish us this coming year with even more. I pray that this year would be even a, a greater year uh, that you will help us see who you are in an even bigger way. Thank you, God. And I pray that today you will open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and challenge us and, and also comfort us with your gospel. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So a quick review of what we've seen with uh we started in Ephesians, and chapter 1 to 3 is a more theological uh, part of the book. The second part, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are more practical. 
And uh, if you remember, chapter 1, Paul starts by talking about uh, salvation through election. We talked about predestination and, and all of those uh, elements of salvation. We also saw the Trinity and how they all played a part in our salvation. Uh, the Father decreeing, the, the Son coming and, and, and basically dying for us, achieving our salvation. The, the, the Spirit applying that salvation, sealing us and becoming our inheritance uh, for uh, eternal life. Then in chapter 2, we see an explanation of the gospel, verses 1 to 10. That is a, one of the most um, robust explanations of the gospel we see. And then chapter, uh, verse 10 ends by telling us that this gospel produces works in us. Uh, then Paul moves on to talk about the reconciliation of the Gentiles and the Jews, ethnic groups that are no longer divided. Uh, they're both been made one new man. Uh, Jesus uh, destroyed the wall of separation and hostility between them and creates one man. And we're not only reconciled to each other, but now we're reconciled to God as one man as well. And then he mentions the creation of the household of God and how Jesus is a cornerstone of this household, which is the church, that we're being built together into a dwelling place for God, all of us from everywhere. And then chapter 3, Paul moves on to explain the mystery hidden for, for, uh, for ages, that the plan has always been that the Gentiles were also a part of the household of God, that it was not just for the Jews, it was for everybody and then uh, he talks about the manifold wisdom of God. He prays for the church. He talks about the fullness of God that includes everybody. And that's, uh, that's where we left. In chapter 3, Paul ends by talking about the fullness of God and the inclusion of everyone in this plan that he had. So today we move to a more practical side of things. So chapters 4, 5, and 6 will be more practical. We will see a lot of exhortations, a lot of calls to action and to do things that we did not see in the first three chapters. But I want to make sure we understand something. Everything that Paul said before is the bedrock of everything that's going to happen afterwards. So whatever we see that Paul brings up to us, the challenges, the exhortations are not for us to do in our strength. Paul is not going to call us to do this out of our own goodness or will, but rather it's, it's an expression or a consequence of the gospel that he explained to us previously. So it is a supernatural outworking of the fact that we've been chosen and that we have been saved by this amazing grace uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and read our text for this morning. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6 only today. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Sorry, I have wrong chapter. I was starting with the first one. <clears throat> I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I decided to break this section in two pieces. This argumentation or this whole paragraph goes all the way to verse 16, but we're going to take it in two, in two, in two parts. And um, if you notice, the topic of today is, is unity. There's mentions of one, of all, and one body, one God, one calling. And Paul literally says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So that's going to be the topic for today. How do we achieve unity in a church? Remember, who is Paul writing to? A church in Ephesus. We need to remember that this was a church planted in a Gentile city that was a large city in the, in the first century, and it was a port, it was a, an influential city. It was literally the crossroads between the East and Asia, or Europe and Asia, and also the Middle East. Uh, it was a large city, a Roman city. It was also known because it was the house of uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple uh, of uh, Diana, which was how the, the Romans knew it, and uh, the, the Greek goddess uh, of Artemis. So this city was filled with people from all over the place. There was Romans, there was Greeks, there were pa Persians, there were Jews, there were people from all over the world. And the Christians came to this, uh, to this city, uh, Paul more, more precisely, and a church began. And the church reached people from all these places. So Paul is writing to a church that was composed of different people from different backgrounds with completely different ways of doing life, traditions, and a church that was experiencing one of the most common problems of the church in the New Testament, which was racial or ethnic conf conflicts. So today we're going to talk about this a little more because even though we don't hear a lot about this, there was a lot of discrimination inside the first churches. And if you think about it, it's natural. Romans and Greeks did not necessarily get along. Persians and Jews did not get along. And they didn't like each other. They had conflict with each other. And their cultures were very, very different from each other. The Jews, for instance, they believed they were better than everyone else, or the Gentiles, because they were the chosen people. And then that's exactly what Paul is talking about in the first three chapters. He's like, no, no, no. There's no longer any chosen people. It's everybody. And that's what Paul argues. And then he actually says, from the beginning, part of the mystery that we are now understanding is that the Gentiles were included all along. And then Paul continues to argue because not only the Jews thought they were better, but the Greeks also thought they were better. In fact, they conquered that land. And then the Greeks, uh, the Romans, I'm sorry, and the Greeks thought that they were better than everybody because they were very smart. And, uh, and there was a lot of conflict in that time. The Jews were also seen as a small and significant race or people because they uh, were conquered by the Romans. So... As we move today into a more practical way, let me start by going to verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
Paul is asking, he's appealing, he is even begging, some translation, translation says that that's the word, to walk, to live, to do life in a manner that it's worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Paul is calling us to live in line with the gospel. The urge, the appeal, the exhortation is to live in a matter that is worthy of the gospel, but what does that mean? And Paul says it in verse 3, that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in a way, what Paul is saying is, I'm calling you, I'm urging you to maintain the unity of the gospel or living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel by being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Our main point will continue to be unity. And then Paul, in verse 2, says something interesting. He tells us four different characteristics or four different values that are essential in a church in order to achieve unity. And we're going to talk about this today. The first one is humility. The second one is gentleness. The third one is patience. And the fourth one I will call tolerance. And I will explain a little later why. And then at the end of verse 2, there's a little note that all of those things need to be done in love. Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, and all of that in love. So go ahead. Let's go ahead and start breaking down what does that mean. <clears throat> First, unity in a church does not mean uniformity. We tend to think that unity is all having the same kind of clothing or looking the same or that we all think the same thing or that we all like the same things. That is not necessarily the kind of unity that Paul is talking about. And in fact, that's not the unity that was reflected in the church at that time or at any time. Unity does not mean uniformity. And that is a conflict that we struggle with because in the West, we see churches that are united by how they look. They are homogeneous in a lot of ways. I remember when I was young, there was a church that came in Mexico City, and uh, it was an underground church for punk and rockers. I'm pretty sure that was not a Mexican idea. It probably came from here. And... The idea behind that was that we're going to do church with the people that are like me. And at the time, it, it was cool, and they were reaching a certain population of, 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 of the city that maybe nobody was reaching. But you looked into the church, and there was only one kind of music. There was only one color that everybody preferred, and that was black. And there was, everybody looked the same. Piercings was normal, and crazy hair. Like, all, it was... That was, or that is usually what the world think of unity. But the church, when we talk about unity, we're not talking about this kind of unity. We're talking about a unity that is not uniformity, that is not homogeneous. It's not based on cultures or hobbies or commonalities. It's actually based on a common God or a common Father. And listen, we're not called by Paul today to create unity. We're not called to find ways to relate to each other. The, the call that Paul is doing is not 
find something that you have in common with your brother and sisters and cling to that. That's not what Paul is saying. He's already saying, you already have something in common. This unity has been provided by the Spirit. And the fact is that you are both sons and daughters of the same God. So you are, you are brothers and sisters. That is your commonality. We're not united because of how we think or how we dress or our culture. We're united because we have one Father. And that is what Paul is calling us to do. To understand that we're going to be united even though we're different, even though we're not a homogeneous uh, church. We, we share the same Father, and therefore we are called to maintain the unity that has already been given to us. So, as a church that is hoping to see uh, more diversity, this is something that is part of our vision and our mission, uh, as a church that seeks to maybe hopefully reflect Manassas at large, we are going to need to understand how to achieve or maintain the unity that God has given to us. The first thing we need to understand is that we need humility. Humility is essential for the unity of the church. And it's, this is important. The first word that we see here in, the, in, in verse 2 is humility. Paul calls us to be humble. And the word humility here literally means the disposition of valuing or assessing oneself appropriately, especially in light of one's sinfulness or creature, creatureliness. Is that even a word? Anyway. Humility is understanding who we are. And who we are not. Humility is understanding that we are not better than anyone. But it's also understanding that we're not less than anyone. Humility is understanding that we are all equal. We're all equally human. We are all equally sinners. We are all equal. That is literally the meaning of humility. It's assessing or valuing oneself appropriately. Humility means that when we look at the other person, there is a, a strong conviction within us that we are the same. You're looking at the same. The homeless, the drug addict, the rich, the poor, the prostitute, the foreigner, the Muslim, the orphan, the Christian, the atheist, the elderly, the unborn, the baby, they're all the same. We're all worthy of respect, love, and we all have equal dignity and value. Humility is a conviction that is born out of the image of God within us, understanding that we're all created in the image of God. That is the essence of humility. And if we're going to be a church that is diverse and united, we need to be humble. We need to understand that nobody here is better than others. So humility is a true conviction. And knowing that's deep inside of you that you are not better than anyone. 
Despite your achievements, education, hard work, ethics, you are not more than any other human being. But on the other side, it is also understanding that you are not less than anyone. It is also a true conviction of the fact that despite your failures and circumstances, sins, mistakes, and defects, you are created also in the image of God and carry with you an imprint of God's very image. So being humble or not being humble falls in both sides. Because for us, being humble is assessing our value or our assessing, assessing who we are appropriately. And for us, this is only done if we put it in line with the Scripture. And Scripture says that we're all sinners, that we're all human beings, and that just because you are a human being, you are worthy of respect and dignity. So humility in this context, or what Paul is calling us to, 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 to understand, is that humility is not primarily an action. Humility is actually more of a conviction. It's a concept. It's something that we need to think. It's something that we need to understand. It's how we see other people and how we see ourselves. For instance, Paul explains this very well in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or, or conceit, but in humility... And look at what he says after. Count others or think of others more significant than yourself. That is humility. That's what Paul is talking about. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us the example of what Jesus did. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and take the form of, taking the form of a servant, being born in the, in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That is humility. That is Thinking of yourself rightly. It's a conviction that we have. It's considering others instead of just considering ourselves. We might be here and say, yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I see some of you nodding. I see some of us thinking that, yeah, this is true. This is right. We should do this. But the reality is that our society does not work like this. Our society and ourselves are people who are sinful. We're always trying to find ways to feel better than others. Or some of us sometimes are finding ways to feel less than others. And this is in everything. I don't know if you knew, but... Our culture constantly tells us what is better, what is acceptable, what is the right way of doing things. And this has created all kinds of different issues. And if we're going to be a church that seeks to be diverse, we're going to have to talk about this and address these issues at a deeper level. For instance, in sociological terms, there is something called high culture. And you can read about these things. And there's debate about this. But there's basic, basically three categories. They're mostly uh, uh, <clears throat> tied to the arts. But there's high culture, 
There's popular culture and there's folk culture. And typically, if you think about it, high culture is what's considered, um, or it's, for instance, ballet is high culture. Classical music is high culture. A specific kind of art or paintings or sculptures is high culture. Certain kinds of foods are high culture. And if you notice, that's already telling you something. And in our brains, we actually think that way. It's not the same to know breakdancing than to know ballet. We immediately think that one is better than the other. We immediately think that one is a right art and the other one is something you do on the street. And the same with food. It's not the same to say I went to a French restaurant than to say I went to an Indian restaurant or a Mexican restaurant. And it's the same with everything. We have created categories in our brains to say what is better for others or what's the right way of doing it. Funny enough, high culture is any, anything related to European culture. Classical music is the music, right? If you want to learn music, what do you learn? European music. You learn all the how to write, how to play European music, because that is high culture. And then we have popular culture, or pop culture, and that is seen, in fact, there's a division between high and low culture, and, and pop and folk cultures uh, are part of what's called low culture. Pop, popular culture is what the masses do. And then folk culture is everything that's ethnic or foreign. And in the world, this is not an American problem or a European problem. This is everywhere. You can go to Mexico and people think this exact way. People think, and, and if you go to a French restaurant, then you went to a good restaurant. If you studied and you, you went to, to take ballet classes, then you are a certain kind of person. And this is how it is. This has been applied to everything. Sports, food, even theology. The world and us are always trying to create categories for, for, to, to find ourselves in a better position or feel better than others. And what Paul is saying here is we need to understand that we're all equal. That just because you do something in a specific way does not mean that that other way is wrong. And this is something that as a church we need to understand. We are called to understand that we are all equal. We're simultaneously sinners and saints, using the language of Martin Luther. This is our calling that Paul is doing to us to know that we all need to agree with each other and see each other with love. Think of the church of the first century. How did a Jew see a Roman? How did a Persian see a Greek? What was happening in their brains? 
And Paul is saying that has happened since the beginning of the church and continues to happen today. Paul is calling us to be humble. The opposite of humble is proud. And I don't know if you know this, but there are over 153 verses in the entire Bible that condemn pride. One of them, James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the first thing that Paul is calling us to do is if we want to be a church that maintains the unity that the Spirit has already given to us, we have to be humble. We must think of ourselves correctly, appropriately, not more or less than others. We need to learn to understand and appreciate each other. The second thing that Paul calls us to be is gentle. He calls us to gentleness. And this is important because gentleness is the action that follows humility. Gentleness is not necessarily a concept. Gentleness is something that you do. As opposed to humility, which is something that you think. Gentleness is the act uh, or act is acting in a manner that is gentle, mild, or even tempered. Matthew Henry, the great commentary, or commentator says, gentleness is the daughter of humility. Humility and gentleness go together. And in the church, we are called to treat everyone the same because we think and we understand that everyone deserves respect and love. And let's be honest. This is something that happens in the churches. And again, I'm not trying to bash the church today. This is, in fact, something that was written about in the first century. James chapter 2. Have you ever read the book of James? It literally talks about this. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 says... Remember, this is written to the first century churches. And James literally said, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And look at the example that James gives. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. That is exactly what Paul is talking about. And if we're going to be a church that is united and really seeks to be diverse, we're going to need to understand that we need to be humble. We need to start eliminating these categories of what I do is better than what you do and treating each other accordingly. And we're not, we're not going to be able to do this. I know there are churches that will not allow you to be an elder unless you have a specific education or if, you've, uh, if you are a successful businessman. I actually heard one pastor said one time to find men in the church who had worked with budgets of more than a million dollars. And that was something that was going to qualify them to be elders. This is all things that the Bible prohibits us to do or from doing. Being gentle means treating everyone with respect with honor, acting in a manner that is gentle, 
mild, and even-tempered. And doing the opposite of that, if we start to show partiality with people, and if we start to, in the, in the terms that we use today, being discriminating towards somebody, we are sinning. This is exactly what James continues to say in that same chapter. Paul says that discrimination or partiality is sinful. Verse 8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted, convicted by the law as transgressors. Paul is very clear. This was happening in the church. And it's happening right now. And we need to understand that if we're going to maintain the unity of the body, if we're going to be a diverse church that reflects the church in Ephesus, when we're going to have people from Bolivia, people from Mexico, people from America, and even within America, people from Texas, people from New York, California, they're all different kinds of people, and everybody thinks differently. We're going to need to be humble, and we're going to need to learn how to treat each other with respect, with gentleness. And there's something I want to talk about. The, the example that James uses is, is versus a rich person and a poor person. And I don't know if you know this, but the entire Bible makes an emphasis on how we should treat the poor. The Bible is very clear on how God views the poor and how he calls us to treat the poor. There's even sort of a different category for us to treat the poor. And we don't have time to dig into this, but in the Old Testament, when you see or hear the poor mentioned, the Bible is typically refer referring to three specific groups of people. The first one is the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. So in a way, summarizing these three uh, groups is single women, children, and aliens. And I'm not talking about the ones that fly on the space. The poor are typically summarized, or these three groups are typically summarized as the poor. And let me just read a couple of verses about what God says and how we treat these people. And I'm taking this a little further than just being gentle to one another. But I'm saying the Bible, in the general context of the Bible, we're not only called to be gentle to each other, we need to be able to show a specific kind of treatment towards the poor. Deuteronomy 10 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. And he says, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then he says, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then there's two verses, actually three, that makes a striking difference when it comes to how we treat the poor. Proverbs 19, 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. The Bible says that whatever we do for the poor, we're literally doing it for Jesus. Then Proverbs 14 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. And the best passage of all, Matthew 25, 
literally says that at the end of the day, God is going to have the, the, the sheep and the goats. And he's going to say to the people, welcome to your kingdom because you clothed me, because you gave me water, because you held me in my time of need. And then we're going to respond, when did we do this for you, God? And God is going to respond, truly I say to you, as you, did to, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. There is no other group in the entire Bible in which if we treat them correctly, God is saying you're doing it for me as well. It doesn't say that about the Jews. It doesn't say that about the rich. It doesn't say that about anyone else. But when it comes to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the, the foreigner, God says, if you treat those people well, you're doing it for me. You are literally treating me well. If you, if you oppress them, you're insulting me. And as Christians, when Paul is talking about this, he's calling us to treat everyone with gentleness. But he's also doing it in the context of understanding this. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul knew that there is a specific kind of treatment that we need to show towards the poor. And as a church who tries to find diversity or tries to move in a more diverse way, we need to understand this. It's going to be, it's going to require us to really dig into who we are, what we do, and how we treat each other. If we want a church that maintains a unity, that seeks diversity, we must treat each other with gentleness. We must not think ourselves more or less than others, and we should not treat anyone with partiality or discrimination, especially the poor. The third element that Paul mentions is patience. And patience is literally just waiting. The definition is patience, waiting, calmness, long-suffering, or the tolerance of delay. And it has to do with timing. Patience has to do with putting a time frame on something. And this is something that I hope at some point we talk about this because time is something that cultures value very differently. And I hope you don't think I'm trying to read too much in the text. This is truly what is happening in the church. If you read all the New Testament letters, you will see that this was something that happened to the point that the Jews were trying to infiltrate their Judaism into Christianity. The Jews were trying to make all the Greeks and the Romans become Jews in order for them to become Christians. And Paul is here saying, let's stay together. And it's going to require humility, gentleness, and patience. And this is something that we need to work on as well. It's going to take us different, different amount of, amounts of times to do different kinds of things. And I, this is not about necessarily like when we start church or if, if Hispanics are always late, which is true, and all those things. It's not necessarily about that. In fact, the word here for patience, uh, it, it's a different word. There's two words for patience in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament in Greek. And one of them is related to stuff or like literally things like being on time or the crops or, or things like that, being patient with things or circumstances, but this one 
is actually related to people. This kind of patient, patience is related to people. It's related to one another. And what Paul is saying here, there are cultures that are way faster. And, and then back then, that was probably the Roman culture. The ambitious culture. The one that went and conquered the entire world. The one that actually wanted action and needed to be effective. And they needed to see the results because that was the motto of the entire empire. But then there were others, maybe like the Greeks, who liked to sit and stare at stuff for hours and think. And then exist. Right? And they were... They were saying all kinds of things and they were battling with each other because they were not matching in their, in their speed. And if we're going to be a church that seeks to be diverse and maintain the unity, we're going to have to be patient with each other. We're going to have to learn to not set specific time frames for people's sanctification. Some of us take longer to, to do certain things and some of us are super quick at other things. But we all think that our way or our speed is the right speed. I've said it, and I've heard many Christians say, man, these people have been coming to church for so many years, and they still, right? Have you said it? Don't raise your hand. I've said it. I've been like, man, I thought he went to Sunday school when he was a kid. Like, come on. But the reality is that we all have something like that. If everybody looked at our lives, they could say, really, you've been a Christian for that long and you still do that thing that you haven't been able to fix? Come on. We all have something like that. But thank God that Jesus doesn't say that to us. He welcomes us every day, every week, every month, every year, every decade, and he works with our stuff. And that's what he's calling us to do with each other to be patient with each other. We're all in a journey. We're all being transformed, sanctified, shaped into the image of Christ. And we need to be, and we need people around us who are patient with our struggles. We need people around us who are not rushing us. And Paul is calling us to be those people. Let me speed up because I'm taking too long. The last one is tolerance. And the reason why I use tolerance, even though the text says bearing with one another, is because uh, the word here means to endure something unpleasant or difficult, whether on one own behalf or on behalf of someone else. And I chose the word tolerance because as we use it today, uh, endurance is something that, or, or endure is something that we use mostly for stuff or illnesses or circumstances. But tolerance relates to people. And in fact, the dictionary, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, defines to tolerate as to allow to be or to be done without prohibition, hindrance, or con contradiction. To put up with, to endure or resist the action of something or someone. So I think that in today's language, tolerance would be probably a more appropriate word. So Paul is reminding a, di a diverse church of something that we already talked about before. Tolerance relates to how difficult this is going to be. 
It's not just about being patient or being humble or, or, or treating each other with gentleness. Paul is saying, endure with each other, bear with each other. It's going to be hard. It's probably going to be unpleasant. It's going to be difficult. And it's true. And we've said it many times. And I'm going to continue to say it. Because the point of being a church that is diverse and that's reaching the larger Manassas area is that we're going to have to, we're going to be uncomfortable. The concept of a comfortable church works in a homogeneous way. But now it doesn't work if we're going to be diverse. And you notice it in, in the city. I know how people from Mexico City drive, and you don't like it because you beep at me all the time. <laughs> and think of this. There are people in this, in this area that have never driven a car before coming to America. Literally. There's people who are from India, and there's no traffic lights or lanes. And there's people who have driven their entire life. And, there's, and that's how it is. The American way no longer exists because we are all coming in from all kinds of places. And we need to understand that it's going to be difficult and that we're going to have to swallow a few things that are going to be hard. And we already do that. I want you to think of an example. Can you imagine a potluck back in Ephesus? Imagine a potluck, just a simple meal of the church in Ephesus. Just think of the juice. They must have been horrified at some of the things that the Persians or the Romans ate. Jews cannot even have cheese and meat touch each other or be in the same plate. And that was not a concept for a lot of them. Even the meat that was put in their plate, they needed to know who cooked it, how they cooked it, what animal it came from, and how the animal was killed. Do you think that the Jews were able to see that? Imagine eating with a Jew right here, and he's like, um, excuse me, where, is, where, where did you cook that meat? And did you touch something that, are you, even for, for women, are you in your period? How awful it must have been to have a potluck with a Jew. This was happening in the church. And then not only that, they were coming into each other's houses. Imagine a Roman walking into a Jew's house or a Jewish house. We, we think this is a new concept or this is like, oh, Chewie's talking about this new progressive thing that is happening. No, this has happened all the time. And Paul was saying to the church, it's going to be hard. And I'm going to continue to say this. It's going to be hard. That little word that we have in our statement that says that we're going to be a, a diverse church sounds really cool on paper. But in reality, it's super hard. Because we are both going to be really uncomfortable. 
I remember the first time I came to America. If you know this, in Spanish, uh, there's, uh, when you treat or we, we deal with people that are similar to you, you use tú or vos, right? That's like the, hey, tú, whatever. But then if you talk to someone who's like an older person or a pastor, we have usted, which is like the formal you. And that doesn't exist in the U.S. And the first time I was in a formal setting by myself, and there was these pastors, and they were older than me, I could not even dare to call them you. It sounded so bad. I went to a pastor, and I was like, how are... I couldn't say usted. If you have no idea how it felt. I was like, like no, they're going to think I'm really rude because I'm calling them you. And then people called me you all the time, and I felt like, why do you call me you? Like, I'm better than you. Because <laughs> in Spanish, you say, call me usted, if, if, if you require respect. I'm just kidding about that. But anyway, so there is, I, I didn't understand it. And that was really hard. It, it actually creates a conflict. You, like, you literally freeze, like, what? I remember the first time someone invited us to a birthday and every time somebody says birthday to me, it means party. But then I arrived at the home, and there were only hors d'oeuvres and wine. And then we played board games. And I was like, what is happening here? And I didn't eat because I was going to a party. I used to unintentionally pronounce the word F-O-X in a way that changed the meaning drastically. And people were like, what are you saying? I actually, during a sermon, used the word facade, and I said, facade. And nobody told me that is French. Who thinks that facade is pronounced facade? Where? Why? This is hard. You, I was embarrassed because everybody was like, what did he say? It's really hard. These are just some of my comic examples. There's a bunch of them that were really embarrassing. Carla moved, Carla, being a Hispanic, moved to Mexico, and she went to a school in Mexico, and Mexican girls are really close, and they were hold hands, and they were doing everything together, and they were always going to the bathroom together and going everywhere together. And Carla one time lost his, her temper, and she told her friend who said, can I go with you to the store? Because Carla was walking out to the store. She's like, leave me alone. And she just literally said that to her and walked out. And she was like, I can't be with people this much. I just can't. And then we spent five years in Mexico, and Carla got used to that and came back to the U.S. And in D.C., we, she tried to hug somebody, and the person literally took a step back. These are some of the examples of how hard it is. You think it's just like, yeah, let's be diverse. Woo. It's not easy. Some of our traditions are weird. Did you know that in Spain, next to the nativity scene, there is a man defecating? It's called el caganer, and it's an actual thing. You see a nativity scene, and there's a little figurine of a guy pooping in the nativity scene. And that is a literally tradition. Like a, I'm not, you can look it up. A literal tradition in Spain. I don't know what that's exactly. That's what we're going to be saying constantly. Why? That is diversity. 
And Paul is saying, we're going to have to be patient with each other. We're going to have to treat each other with gentleness. We're going to have to be able to be humble. And we're going to have to be tolerant. And then Paul closes that section saying that all of that must be done in love. So we're not going to just be doing this because it's the right thing to do. And maybe you think that, well, this sounds like we're not ever, like we're never going to confront each other or correct each other. We're just going to happen, live in this happy little world. And no, that's not what we're saying. What I'm saying is that we might need to delay calling something a sin before asking questions. What I'm saying is that we might need to be open to the fact that that's not necessarily wrong or that our values are different from their values. Paul is not saying that we should never disagree or correct or call out each other. No. In fact, the Bible calls us to do that. But what Paul is referring to when he says to do this in love, it's mostly on why we do that. It's... Paul is dealing with the heart. What's the reason behind what we do? Why do you think that classical music is better than reggaeton? Which it is, by the way. <laughs> just kidding. I just don't like reggaeton, but I'm learning. I'm, God is speaking to me through this. We need to do this in love with a true, genuine interest in the other person. Not just to be right or politically correct. No. Because it is the right. It, it's, it's what we are supposed to do to love each other. And I want to finish by saying, did you notice that Paul highlights the Trinity again? Everything that Paul's ta Paul has talked about has to do with the Trinity somehow. And when we read it, It's like, why is he talking about the Trinity? And there's one spirit. And then he says there's one Lord, which the word is curious, which is the, the word used for Jesus. And then there's one God and one Father. It's precisely because this is the example that we have of unity. We have three different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, with three different functions, with three different personalities and personas who love each other, who prefer each other, who glorify each other, who send each other. But they're one. And this is exactly the example that we need. And in fact, Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. And he said, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, meaning us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity is key to everything we're going to do. But this is so hard. It's basically impossible. 
Number one, because we're sinful, because we want our own ways. We want to be better. We want to feel superior. I was so dumb that when Argentina won the World Cup, I immediately started thinking, what has Mexico done that's better than Argentina? And I was like, well, we have two Oscars, and we've won Grammys, and I was just so stupid by trying to find something that will make me feel better because my team suck in, in, in soccer. Because we are sinful. Because we want to find a way to be better. And it's impossible to do it unless, unless someone else does it for us. Unless we have a God who actually tells us, come to me because I am gentle and lowly. Someone who is what we are not. And this is what the gospel brings to us that is amazing. Is that Paul, again, is not telling us to do it on our will. He spent three chapters telling us this is something that has already been done for us. We have a God who is patient. We have a God who is gentle. We have a God who is humble. We have a God who tolerates us daily. We have a God who has done it for us. And he lives within you if you're a believer. Jesus already lived the life that we needed to live, and he died in our place, and he has forgiven us for being proud and for being everything else that we're not. And he invites us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, because he is carrying that yoke. And if you're not a believer, I want to invite you to come and take this opportunity to say yes to Jesus and turn your life to him and enjoy the freedom and the peace that the gospel brings us. I am unable and you are unable to be gentle and lowly and humble and all those things. We are unable, but Jesus did it for us. And through him, we are now able to do it because we have been given grace. We can extend grace to others as well. So I'm going to ask you to stand up, and I'm going to ask the band to come, because I went too far. And we're going to celebrate communion. And we're going to remember that when we take that bread, we remember that Jesus was punished in our place. Our sinfulness, our pride was put on Jesus' body and he was crushed on our behalf. And when you take that cup, we're going to remember that his blood was spilled to cleanse us, to clean us from our sins, and to provide us with eternal life that we did not deserve. This is why we take communion every Sunday, to remember that Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice, and that in him we have been accepted by the Father.